Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Triangulation, episode 431, recorded September 29th, 2022. Choke Point Capitalism with Cory Doctorow. It's time for Triangulation, also a Twit event and a very, very, very special event. You've seen Cory Doctorow on our shows many times. We're huge fans of his fiction, but also of his nonfiction. And Corey just co-authored a book now out called Choke Point Capitalism. Corey, and, there it is <laughs> on the screen. Corey and his co-author Rebecca Giblin uh, are joining us from the Tiki Bar in beautiful downtown, whatever. That's uh, my office. Redondo Tiki Bar is in the backyard. Oh, it's too okay. Hot. It's too hot in the Tiki Bar. Uh, great to have you both. Thank you, Rebecca and Corey. Rebecca is a professor of law at the University of Melbourne Law School, but a, a, a kind of an expert on the intersection of uh, law and culture and technology and culture. So this is a very, uh, you scored a good co-author for this book, Corey. I know this is something, Corey, you've been, a drum you've been beating for a while. But let me say before we get into the interview uh, that this is the most perfect manifesto and expression I've heard yet of something we all kind of feel under the surface. There's something wrong. Uh, Prices are going up. Companies are making billions during COVID while we're out of work. There's just something wrong going on. Uh, Our our publishers are being condensed into a handful of companies. Uh, Google and Facebook are totally dominating the online ad space is just something, something feels off and we know it's off, but we can't quite put our finger on it. This is the book to read, Choke Point Capitalism. Some years ago, I interviewed uh, Shoshana Zuboff when her book Surveillance Capitalism came out. But as, as you point out in uh, Choke Point Capitalism, she, she said the danger of all this uh, power being concentrated in a handful of companies is that they will trick us into voting for the wrong person or buying a product we don't really want. But you point out in this book, it's actually worse than that. <laughs> First of all, I should ask, and I'll let either of you answer, what is choke point capitalism? There you go. All right. So choke point capitalism is is not just the idea that there's an intermediary between you and the people you want to reach. Um, that, that's been around forever. I, I, when I was growing up in Toronto, there was this one independent author, a guy named Crad Kolodny, used to stand on the main road on Young Street with a sign around his neck that said, very famous Canadian author, buy my books. And then he would just sell his books. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. Like, he was great, right? He was very funny. He also had a sign that said, Margaret Atwood. Uh, and he would pretend to be Margaret Atwood, who gave us a really nice quote for our book and who herself went and stood with him at one point. He was kind no, of an institution. I love but it. But he's, you know, he was a guy with a lot of hustle, but not everyone who writes a book should have to stand on the street with a sign around their neck in order to sell it. It's fine for there to be intermediaries. The difference is when the intermediaries have the whip hand, right? When there's just uh, a couple of companies, as you said, four big publishers, three big uh, uh, label or labels, uh, four big studios, one movie theater chain, one uh, print bookstore chain, one electric uh, electronic bookstore chain, one uh, distributor, one radio network, right? When it's just one or two or three, when you go to bring your wares to market, they all have these um, remarkably terrible uh, conditions that they impose on you uh, in order to get to the audience that you need to reach. And 
because you have to pass through a choke point to get there, whatever it is you have to bargain with is just taken from you and used to make the person who's doing the taking stronger. So like if you, uh, every time you, your kid went to school, a bully took their lunch money. If you give, gave that kid more lunch money, it would just make the bullies richer. And it wouldn't matter if the bullies were out there going like, won't someone think of America's hungry school children? Give your kid extra lunch money today. It'd still be a bad buy. And the same way, you know, we give creators copyright, but they have to sign it all away. Not that copyright that is needed to, to be exploited for the immediate purpose of an individual firm or distribution channel. They want it all, whatever they can use, whatever they can sell to someone else, whatever they think they might need in the future. As the standard Hollywood contract goes and all media now known or yet to be invented throughout the known universe for the rest of time. Right. So that's that's the rights they want to take from you. And this explains how it is that over 40 years, the share of income from creative works that goes to creators has declined where the um, revenues from creative works have only expanded and the uh, term and scope of copyright has only grown. We give creators more copyright, more money is made by the publishers, labels, and studios, and creators get less and less of it. So we need something else. And that's what this book is about. What else we can give them? Yeah. So say what you like about capitalism, right? You could be for, or you want to burn it all down, but if you have it, competition is supposed to be essential, right? But uh, what we've seen over these last 40 years, this slow-moving glacier of um, monopolization, we, we hear people like Warren Buffett start to salivate over companies that have got wide sustainable moats, by which they mean got customers and suppliers locked in in some way so that they can extract super competitive prices. They, you know, we hear Peter Thiel say things like, competition is for losers. So what they're doing, you know, they're creating these hourglass shaped markets that have got, you know, audiences at one end and creators at the other, or, you know, workers at one end and, and customers at the other. And they're, they're squatting themselves at the neck where they're extracting more than their fair share. So we're all feeling it um, as a result of this, but we can see it perhaps most, clo- most clearly in the creative industries. Yeah. And that's, I think an important point. This is not just Big tech, big tech is often demonized, but it is in almost every sphere. So recording artists are making less and less as the record companies are getting fatter and fatter. Uh, Writers are making less and less as the publishers are getting fatter and fatter. This you talk a little bit about and we have antitrust laws in the United States. um, And you talk a little bit about something that shifted a little bit in uh, in how we view monopolies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, 40 years ago, there was this guy who's kind of the court sorcerer to Ronald Reagan, a guy named Robert Bork, who um, uh, argued in a book called The Antitrust Paradox and a bunch of articles that if you looked really hard at what the legislators who created America's landmark antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, the Federal Trade Commission Act, if you looked really closely at what they said, that you would find that they actually loved monopolies. And they thought monopolies were incredibly efficient and could produce incredible things. Just give little Jeffrey Bezos as much uh, power <laughs> as he as he needs. And the next thing you know, we'll all be getting par- parcels on our doorstep the next day. It'll be in- incredibly convenient. And, and we will all benefit. And if we, if we hold him down, if we take these John Galts and we subject them to architectural review, then we won't get the benefit of their singular genius. And that the only time that we should ever punish a monopolist is when they're a bad monopolist. And the bad monopolists are the monopolists who, um, raise prices on consumers 
very shortly after creating or maintaining a monopoly. And, and only in those cases should antitrust law be enforced. And only when you can prove that the reason the prices went up was because of the monopoly and not because like oil prices went up or labor prices went up or like the moon is in Venus. You know, you should just, you should just focus on, on those cases where it's provably the result of a monopoly that prices went up and everything else will follow. And 40 years later, we stopped enforcing antitrust law. We got monopolies everywhere. It's not actually like very hard. You sometimes see people wringing their hands going like, what is it about the 21st century that has been so amenable to monopolies? It's like, well, we let companies buy their competitors. Like, that's a good one. Yeah. And then we created this standard that encourages them. OK, so you can't be too obvious about raising consumer prices, although they totally do. Um, they're just a little bit more discreet about it. Uh, but they are encouraged to shake down their workers and suppliers at the other end, because if they can do that, they can have the same end result, which is increasing their margin, but in a way that can, you know, plausibly point to, well, there's no additional price paid by consumers. But then if you look at the other end, and a lot of people will be feeling this, you know, when your, your wages are being squeezed by your, um, your, your monopolist employer, then you've got less and less capacity to buy the goods and services that you need, which is the same end result as if the prices had been increased. So we've kind of got this sort of um, like a stage magician trick, right, with this misdirection. Look over here, you know, the prices are they're OK, the consumer end and ignore the fact that, you know, they've got their hands stuck in your pocket on the worker and, and supply side. Amazon's a poster child for this because Amazon has continually lowered prices it's a benefit to consumers it's it, it isn't under the way we interpret monopoly the way robert bork uh, wanted to interpret monopoly it's not a a hazard to consumers except we by the way not only do they have to then squeeze suppliers squeeze the creators squeeze the delivery people squeeze the warehouse people but ultimately once they own the market as they did with diapers.com then they raise prices so yeah. they get it they get it on on both ends uh so that's monopoly. We talk sometimes about the fact that the European regulators seem more focused on uh, the size of the company as opposed to consumer harm. Here in the U.S., consumer harm prices seem to be the focus. But there's also, and, and uh, Lena Khan, the new chairman of the FTC, has been very vocal about this. There's another issue besides monopoly. It's monopsony. Can you, can you define? I've always had a hard time mm -hmm. defining monopsony. Can you define yeah. monopsony, Rebecca? We really wanted to be the ones that made monopsony sexy. Um, and <laughs> it's a bad word is part of the problem. A, it, Nobody can pronounce a, it. It's a terrible word. And like yeah. technically we're talking about oligopsony, which is even worse. Whoa. So a bunch of the early readers of the book were just like, you've got to take this out. Plus, like, as, nobody as wants you, to read this As word. you point out, we all played Monopoly growing up. We yeah, know how to, yeah. how to, we know Monopoly, but there's no monopsony game. Yeah, but it's yeah. really, really important to, un to, to know about. Okay. And then once you do know about it, you start to see it everywhere. Everywhere. Right? Yeah. So a monopoly is where you've got a really powerful seller and then they can exert the pressure on buyers. So Amazon does that. For example, like you pointed out, after it cornered the diaper market, then it was able to raise the prices on those. Every their consumers are kind of locked in through Prime and all of those things. Um, and so it's got that monopoly power. But on the other side, Amazon is also a really powerful buyer in a whole range of industries, so including books. Uh, so if you're a publisher, you're a seller into the book market, and Amazon's the buyer, but it's the buyer who's got all the power. And so this is, monopsony is incredibly, we're seeing it everywhere through the culture industry. So, you know, so book publishers who want to, you know, physical books, ebooks, 
digital books. They've got to deal with Amazon, uh, but we see it in um, recorded music markets where we've got three music uh, record labels who control almost 70% of the global recorded music market. You've got to go through them for a lot of stuff. They happen to own three uh, music publishers who own almost 60% of the the song uh, rights market and, and so on it goes. And what's really, we need to know a couple of things about monopsony to understand why it's so problematic. One of the things is that it arises at way lower market concentrations than monopoly does. So even a market, like a buyer that controls 10% of the market can exercise quite a lot of power over, over sellers. And we saw this um, with Amazon when it was starting out. It, um, it actually created something called the Gazelle Project, uh, where it deliberately set out to cull the weaker publishers from the herd. To Perfectly shake those named, down right? Perfectly <laughs> named. And in fact, this seems to be the only part that the lawyers at the company objected to was the name. They're like, you've got to stop saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the fact that um, when Bezos started the company, he really wanted to call it relentless. It's, right? it's, Which, like, it's like calling your, your special operation operation premeditated murder. Yes, we know murder is illegal <laughs> and we are premeditating yeah. it. If you go to relentless.com even today, it still so diverts Amazon. you to Amazon. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so Monopsony, um, so they, uh, they were squeezing a bunch of publishers and those publishers, like Melville House refused to play ball. And so Amazon just removed the buy buttons for its books and they had to give in, right? Now, at that time, I think Amazon was only 8 or 10% of the market, but if they lost those 8 or 10% of customers, they could no longer survive, okay? And so if you think about the fact that they were able to exert that pressure all the way back then and how much more dominance it's got now, we can see that it's super dangerous. It's a regular then, pattern. I mean, they did the same thing to Hachette. When they mm-hmm. tried to negotiate with Amazon, yeah. I remember this very well. And then all the buy buttons just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is a thing that we're we're seeing across all categories of goods. And it's why the state attorney general is suing uh, Amazon here in California. That the, And it actually is quite a parable about how choke points work and how even if they initially benefit consumers, eventually they hurt all of us. So in, in if you want to sell goods to people and you're not on Amazon, you might as well not exist, right? It's just not an option for for most categories of goods these days. And so everyone feels the need to be on Amazon. If you're going to be on Amazon, you have to play by Amazon's rules. So the first thing is, if you want to show up in the first page of listings, you've got to be prime and you've got to be fulfilled by Amazon. And so those are huge fees that Amazon scrapes from the sellers, right? Prime is not free delivery. Prime is delivery charge to the sellers instead of the purchasers. And, and then, um, uh, after you pay for that, you've got to buy what Amazon euphemistically calls ads. So Amazon's got a, like a $32 billion ad market. It's not really ads as we think of them. Most of it is what we think of as payola, right? It's you pay <laughs> Amazon for, for top, uh, billing on Amazon service, this right? Is, but and, this is a longstanding tradition in the grocery store business, sure. right? That's but how there grocery stores used to make be money. Lots of grocery stores. Uh, and so if one grocery store said, yeah, the end cap is going to cost you so much money that you'll no longer be able to afford to make sugar frosted, you know, candy bombs. Uh, then you could go, great. Uh, I'm just not going to sell my cereal or yeah, yeah I'll go, I'll, I'll go to, to Safeway or I'll go to pavilions or I'll go to, you know, any of the Vons or any of the other grocery stores. Um, and, uh, they'll, they'll sell my cereal and my customers will go there because they know that their there's kids nothing across the street box. from Amazon. There's nothing across the street from almost any of these businesses yeah. anymore. Yeah, you know, it's across the street, another Amazon shop, another yeah. Amazon. Yeah. yeah. So Amazon, um, uh, is at this point, if you're selling on Amazon, they're taking more than half of the gross 
uh, um, price of the good. So your margin is less than 50% in many ca- categories and in many cases. And businesses can't afford to do that, right? Their, their margins, their actual margin is less than that, which means that they lose money on every sale. So they have to jack up prices. So this is where the thing that initially benefited consumers starts to look really bad for consumers because the prices go up. But you don't see that the prices are going up because Amazon has another thing that they do, which is a most favored nation status clause, which says that if you sell anywhere that's not Amazon, someplace where you're not giving them 40 percent uh, in our 60 percent in fees, um, you can't charge less than you charge on Amazon, which means that the prices go up on Amazon, but they go up everywhere else. So when you compare the price between Amazon and Target, it's the same price. And it's the same price because Amazon has pushed that price up everywhere. And that's why the AG is suing. He's saying, you've done the one thing that we tell antitrust, that in antitrust, we still tell you not to do, mm-hmm. which is make prices go up. Right. And even if, um, even if the, you know, Target did have a lower price, right? You probably wouldn't see it anyway, because the research shows that once you've bought Prime, Right. An astonishingly low number of people do any comparison shopping after that. I think right? you said 1%. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just really extraordinary. So, yeah. they've got, so this is the Amazon playbook, right? And it's all of their playbook, but it's really clear for Amazon because they actually made a diagram about it that they like like to boast about. <laughs> and we Operation Premeditated Murder. Yeah, Operation Premeditated Murder. You can, yeah. So Amazon's got this flywheel that it loves to boast about, about why, how great, like about how great it is. Okay. Yeah. So, oh no, that's the, that's our version. That's Spoiler! You're doing the spoiler again. Oh, you're showing the wrong one. That was the second one. Show them the first flywheel. There's the legitimate flywheel. So this is Amazon's um, virtuous cycle, right? So it it says we've got this lower cost structure. It leads to lower prices, right? And that attracts more customers. And then, you know, that brings more suppliers in, a better range. And then everybody is super happy. And this sort of cycle continues. And we it's a virtuous cycle. Win, win, win. Everything is so efficient and wonderful. Like, how could anybody complain? That's the one they publish. But that's, that's not really what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And then what we say, well, what's actually really going on is this is not a virtuous cycle. It's anti-competitive because yeah. everything that Amazon has ever done in its business has been designed first and foremost to lock in its customers, right? It did that at the start by using um, venture capital to artificially lower prices so that it could attract customers and also so that then it could get other people selling on its on its market, but also so it could squeeze other competitors out of the market because no one else could who didn't have access to those capital markets could afford to um, to sell at such money on every sale. Do you remember, you know, there was a really long time and Amazon, it looked like a terrible business because it was just losing money hand over fist and people saying it'll never be profitable. But this was always the play to get enough customers locked in that you've got enough suppliers locked in because they've got, you know, they can't go outside of Amazon because that's where the customers are. Then use the the money that you make from that to eliminate even more competition. So everyone's got even less choice. And then ultimately, once you've got that power, once there's only Amazon on every corner, then you shake down your workers and suppliers so that they get an unsustainably low share. So that's the squeeze that's happening. So and everybody that same, loses. That same thing is happening across all of these industries. And there's a tell you talk about in the book when jeff bezos came back from his penis rocket flight mm-hmm. he thanked <laughs> he made a huge mistake he said the quiet part out loud as you say mm-hmm. he thanked all the customers and sellers on amazon and for, workers and the workers for making mm-hmm. it possible and yeah. that's really the only winner in this flywheel of 
You peed in a bottle so yeah. I could pee in a spacesuit. Yeah. And I thank you. Yeah. Also, say that he did he did it because he didn't know what else to spend his That's money right. on. He was also like, oh. I don't know. I've got so I don't know what I can do with my winnings. He called them mm. winnings. Uh, apart he from called them. And I space. want to be clear lottery winnings. Like somehow he'd gotten lucky. But right. it's very clear from day one. This was his strategy. This guy, a hedge that, fund. That, well, he, and, he had that motto, didn't he? Your margin is my opportunity. Right. Right from the beginning. And and these aren't lottery winnings because lottery winnings are taxable. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting because I think we see as customers, we see the low prices going up and we go, oh, yeah, I get the I get the idea. I mean, I think people understand, you know, Walmart. Take you know takes over a town. All the mom and pop grocery stores go away. Then Walmart raises the prices. Uh, but what we don't see, or we just only starting to see, is how it squeezes everybody. Everybody loses the suppliers, the warehouse workers, the delivery guys. Everybody loses to enrich the owners and the executives. That's and it the only winners. The yeah, and it ripples through the supply chain, right? So there's this the the story of American healthcare in in brief goes like this. Pharmaceutical companies created a, a cartel. The cartel started to squeeze the hospitals. The hospitals couldn't afford to pay what the the pharma companies were charging, so they formed a cartel, right? They all merged to to monopoly so that they could push back against the pharma companies. And then they put the screws to the insurers. So the insurers divided up the world so that you've only got one or two insurers in every market. And um, they were able to push back against the hospitals. Now, the only people who weren't organized in this chain of monopolies are healthcare workers on this end and patients on this end. And patients are paying more for worse care. And uh, healthcare workers are getting paid less for worse working conditions. And so that's what happens at either end. Now, these companies are still going to fight among themselves, right, to get a few points here. The insurers really want the hospitals to pay more. The hospitals really want the pharma companies to sell for less. But, you know, the easy pickings in that chain are always going to be the workers and the the users of the system. And we see that in the arts markets. We see that in um, every other kind of market that, you know, the movie theater is now charging 20 bucks for a ticket, but most of the people who work in the industry are getting less in their wages. Uh, and the uh, companies in between have merged to Monopoly, so there's only four studios, and they're doing great. There's another party that's complicit in this, uh, and that's the government. And it's sure. really interesting because they've made laws... That say, and the publishers ran into this, you can't collude on prices. So when the publishers tried to stand strong against Amazon, because Amazon wanted all books to cost $10, and the publishers said, we'll lose our shirts, and they tried to stand strong, they got sued successfully for colluding. Mm -hmm. But if you do it by merging, (laughs) you're not colluding. That's right. And just to be clear, you know, the answer shouldn't be that we encourage the five publishers to form a cartel mm. and, fix and have prices. one publisher. Because then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, no, okay. But, but, oh, I see what you're oh, saying. No, yeah, or or yeah, collude, yeah. Want, or collude. Both right? of what them we are bad. Want yeah. is, the, is for there not to be, like, the answer to pharma companies raising prices isn't monopolies and hospitals. Right. You may have seen this blockbuster report uh, over the weekend. Uh, I believe it was in the New York Times about Providence and McKinsey conspiring to um, screw Medicaid patients out of the free care that they were entitled to and forcing them into medical debt, including their own employees who are so poor and underinsured that they couldn't afford to get uh, medical treatment at the hospitals they worked at and just stole fortunes from these people and then sick debt collectors on them. It's just revolting. Like, we don't want the hospitals to be a monopoly, even if it does right. 
tame the worst impulses of the pharma companies. You know, what, what we want is for the hospitals to be, you know, not too big to fail and not too big to jail. And for the pharma companies not to be too big to fail, and not too big to jail. And the same goes for publishing and Amazon. Mm. Um, I, I, want to reassure everybody we've got some solutions <laughs> yeah <laughs> only the first half of the book is saying how rotten it is the second half is going to be solutions but i do have one question that comes to mind as i hear about this everybody's squeezed except the owners and the executives everybody at mm-hmm. some point doesn't this collapse because you have no more market because all you have is a bunch of poor people Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thomas Piketty in Capital in the 21st Century is just like, hey, look, every time inequality gets to a certain point, someone starts building guillotines. Mm-hmm. Like maybe maybe rich people should pay attention to that. And of course they are. They're like, we're going to Mars or New Zealand. <laughs> Yesterday, we interviewed Douglas Rushkoff. His new book is about the oh, yeah. hidey holes for billionaires. Who yeah. are running We're be away. on stage with Doug at, at the Ottawa Writers He's Festival talking about in how October. you survive talking about this apocalyptic yeah, yeah. and, and Stan, Ken Stanley Robinson at the Ottawa Writers Festival perfect he's going to Mars yeah. uh, I think Douglas was going to a Minuteman silo uh, defended yeah. by Navy SEALs anyway uh, yeah. uh, that's not obviously the end game or the solution I would hope I I wish that the these these successful billionaires were using their heads instead of saying, well, we created a nightmare. The, the climate's going to hell. Uh, we're going to have a revolution because we've squeezed every penny out of everybody. Let's let's build a Minuteman silo and hide there. That doesn't seem like the right answer. They, I mean, they honestly, I think, think that they can retreat to high ground as the seas rise, uh, put yeah, explosive going to New collars Zealand. around their guards' necks, yeah. and then breed their children by Harrier jet. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's going to happen. But they—that's that is Plan B. It is. It's a classic case of knowing the the price of everything and the value of yeah, nothing. Right? There you like go. How how impoverished is that world going to be? Like, who yeah. wants it? So the solution to this, I mean. Um, I despair sometimes uh, of our government because one of the effects of all this is these companies have massive amounts of funds, which they can then, thanks to Citizen United, pour into uh, the government. And we've got the best Congress money can buy. And so I sometimes despair of government solving this, although it's encouraging because President Biden, as you point out, has brought in Lena Khan to run the FTC, Tim Wu. Uh, There are some people... Yeah. In the White House, uh, in the administration, who share your opinion about what's going on and want to do something about it. Yeah. And I want to expand on uh, just a briefly on how money works in politics, because it's not just that they have a lot of money. They do have an awful lot of money, but they also have something equally precious, which is uh, an easy collective action problem to solve. Right. If there's like a 100 companies in a sector when they're trying to figure out what their lobbying position should be, it's going to be all over the map. And Leo, you and I know what this looks like because it looks like the tech industry in the 1990s and early 2000s. Beautiful chaos. Beautiful Lots chaos. of companies, beautiful chaos, not a lot of regulatory capture. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were all doing good things. No, but, but we got great the, innovation out of it, didn't we? And they weren't able to just to clobber, to clobber the government. They were neither too big to fail nor too big to jail. In fact, they didn't and even we, bother going to Washington for a long yeah. time. 
Well, because they couldn't agree on what to say when they got there. <laughs> no one of them was big enough to right. make a difference in Washington. Right. And all of them together disagreed on what should happen. Right. So it was the, it was the kind of thing where if you propose a regulation, like I worked on this thing called the broadcast flag 20 years ago. And when they propose the regulation, you get companies whose ox will be gored by it. And you get companies whose ox will do the goring. And they all show up. They're all the same size. They all show up and they all stand in front of the regulator. And when one of them makes a stupid argument, the other one jumps on top of it because they understand it. In this when case, like it was tipper companies. goring, but okay, right. Yeah, yeah. When there's, <laughs> when there's five companies, they, they tipper gore, that's very funny. Uh, it was a different fight. That was 10 years earlier. But, but the, the, um, I think Al Gore, wasn't Al Gore involved in the, uh, uh, what was the chip, the clipper chip? Wasn't he a proponent uh, of the clipper chip? I don't I know if like he was he in clipper, but he was the information superhighway guy. He was the guy yeah. who demilitarized the internet, right. but also didn't create a public option for it. It's a mixed bag. But, but, um, that the, the point being that, you know, today when there's five companies in a sector, it's not just that they have all this uh, money to, to spend, but they all agree on what to they do know with what it. To and do. they, yeah. and they pretend that they don't like each other, but like right. Sheryl Sandberg wasn't secretly a Facebooker all along trapped in a hell of Google, uh, uh, uh senior management finally rescued by Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Right. Like Google and Facebook have the same priorities with tiny differences around the margin, as does Apple. Yeah. Right. As do all the big companies. No, in fact, it said Sandberg brought the the fundamental basis for Facebook's operations from Google saying, hey, uh, these guys have a good idea. We ought to do this. You thought of spying on people? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that the the the. When when you see Fox and Disney merging, you either have to think, oh, well, Rupert God. Murdoch and Bob Iger were star-crossed lovers no. who dared not speak their their <laughs> their great admiration for one another, or maybe all the differences between Fox and Disney were cosmetic, and yes. at the core, the stuff that they believed in, like not paying taxes, yes. having a monopoly, smashing their workers' unions, that all of that stuff was stuff that they agreed on, and the rest was just like, are we going to paint the the wall the walls in the nursery blue or orange? So what do we do? Now that they are unified and they are spending money. Yeah, so we really didn't want this to be one of those books. We all know those books. We call them chapter 11 books where there's like 10 chapters that just bemoan the problem in excruciating detail and then you feel like full of despair. And then like there's, oh, look, we're at the end. We didn't really have time to do anything except just some wave our hands around and be like, vote harder yeah um, and yeah. So what we wanted to do was something different and so right from the beginning we conceived of this as two halves the first half we wanted to persuade readers that the problems here in creative markets were not that there's not enough copyright it's not that creators aren't hustling hard enough it's that there is too much power that the problem is big whether it's big tech or big content they're all shaking you down um until they've got everything that, that they can squeeze out of your pockets Then once we've done that, we wanted to say, well, once you understand the problem as one of a power imbalance, and particularly of monopsony, well, we can look at the kinds of interventions that actually work, the kinds of interventions that will widen those choke points out and allow for easier access between audiences and creators or between customers and and other workers. And so there's a bunch of things that we know that will do that. Like you can, um, you know, so generally speaking, uh, regulating buyer power directly, um, encouraging countervailing power in workers and producers um, and 
Um, and a few other things. So what we're doing in the book is we, uh, we, we look at all of these really inspirational stories around transparency rights, um, collective action, collective ownership, um, how we can, how we can fix things by creating minimum wages for creative works by sort of we get a bit into the, the, the wonky parts of music licensing here, but as an inspiration. Um, and how do we stop people from baking more choke points in as well? So yeah, maybe I mean, we could tell like one of the, oh, yeah. it's such a tragedy, uh, and reading it is just brings tears to your eyes in your book. What happened to artists, musical uh, artists in the 60s and the 70s? I mean, it was just horrific. And, and, uh, and you talk about so many artists who made not a dime. Uh, a dime. You quote yep. Niles Rogers, who said, I never made a dime from all yeah. of my hundreds of millions of dollars of records sold. And so it's such a tragedy. You also see today, you see a union movement coming back. I think it's really interesting to see Apple and Starbucks and Amazon workers suddenly voting in unions for, for, you know, most of the eighties unions were socialism and anathema. And now I saw a poll that more than half of America thinks unions are a pretty good idea because we've been squeezed. So that's one form of collective action, right? Unionizing. And we, and we had some really hopeful stories in the book. This is a hopeful book, ultimately. This is not a so. downer. Like, okay, and, and the start, yeah. I want to say that, by the way. This is such a well-written book. It is so clear. Some of, Many of these concepts are very difficult. In fact, I've kind of, in my head, over the last 20 years of doing Twit, known that these were problems in the back of my head, but hadn't crystallized it. I read your book, and it was like the scales fell from my eyes. Oh, and it's, hap- by the way, happening to us, happening to us. You talk about the fact that creators got to create. We're going to do it anyway. And these companies know it. They know that, uh, you know, you may screw Niall Rod- Niles Rogers out of every penny of his royalties. He's still going to make music because that's what we got to do. We need to find a way. And you start with cre- the creative class, by the way. It's not... Obviously, everybody has to do something about it. But it, you start with the creative class because we're feeling a lot of the pain. Podcasting is about to disappear as an independent entity, much as blogging did others, newspapers, <laughs> uh, radio stations, because the big companies are squeezing us out. And and uh, so what do, what do people listening to this who must be starting to feel this pain? Mm-hmm. I know we are. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Well, so I got some bad news and I got some good news. So the bad news is that as an individual, you're not going to solve this. There's not much you can do. We I bought an electric an car, Corey. I uh, <laughs> I cut back you, on plastic you, bags. Are you being really careful with your recycling? Because I think if you were to go that one further step. <laughs> I'm composting, composting now. Yes, Corey. <laughs> well, you're compo- okay, well, now it's solved. Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to I don't want to be flip here because like. No, it's good to do these things, things, but it's not going to change the world easier. Yeah. If yep, you're, if yep. the city is going to like give you a composter and help you tend it and take your compost away if you don't need it, all of that stuff, like the systemic stuff that underpins it is going to make a difference, right? It's not going to make a difference if one person does it. It will make a difference if millions of us do mm. it, but millions of us can't do it unless we have systemic changes, right? If the bullies are taking your kids lunch money, you have to get rid of the bullies. You have I, to change the structure. I talk the all yard. the time about how the worst thing America ever did was invent the private automobile. And yeah. I would love to give up my automobile. You mentioned this in yeah. the book. 
but it ain't going to happen because... You can't dig your own subway. Not even Musk can dig his own subway. <laughs> exactly. He's no trying. No matter what he claims. It's got one car going down the road. <laughs> one car going down the road. There's our mass transit solution. Um, so that's the bad news. The bad news is you can't do anything on your own. The good news is that we can do a lot of stuff together. We can do everything together. Yeah. So the second half of the book is like a ton of shovel-ready, highly technical, detailed proposals that take the problems that exist in, under choke points and kind of find the leverage point where if you stick a lever and wiggle it around, it smashes open like a pinata and showers money on creators, mm -hmm. right? That's what we're focused on here. Not like this kind of attenuated thing like, oh, we'll give you 40 more years of copyright. And then somehow, step two... Something will trickle down to yeah. you eventually, probably, maybe. And, you and, you and, demonstrate you know, maybe. how copyright and DRM were used as a cudgel against creators. The to, promise to, yeah. was, we're going to protect you. No, no. From piracy. Good. Yeah. 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 And instead, uh, you know, the pirates just break the DRM. The only people yeah. who can't break the DRM are competitors who might mm -hmm. offer artists a better deal. Why and do you so think you have to use a Kindle? DRM media is locked Why do you in? think you have yeah. to use an iPod or an iPhone? Because yeah. of DRM. But yeah, there's heaps of things we can do right now. Like, just think about, you know, and even sort of at state level in the United States around contract law. So, yeah. like audit clauses, for example, there is this um, bonkers situation, right? Imagine you're a creative worker. You might not have to imagine very hard. You've got an uncertain paycheck. You don't know how it's calculated, and you really have a right to figure that out. Um, if you do have an audit clause in your contract, like if you think something is up, um, then you probably can't afford to bring an audit, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and you're also got you're dealing with contract like particularly in the, um, the, the record industry, which prohibit you from hiring an auditor that um, has already been auditing the company, right? You only, only get a fresh the bodies one. Are buried. Nobody no, with an You only have a fresh one, like yeah. not one that's already been opened. Um, and you absolutely, and, and they're not allowed to look at everything, okay? So you can look over here, but you cannot look where the bodies are buried. Which is right? clearly where you want to look, is the one place There's, they won't let you, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, but then also, even if you do manage to overcome these things and you, you find out that you, you were able to prove that you were owed some money, um, very often they're either going to, you know, deny it entirely or offer you a settlement for pennies on the dollar, which again is very common. And even if you do get offered some money, in order to actually get it, then you're going to have to be, you're going to be obliged to sign a non-disclosure agreement that's like, uh, prevents you from saying to your, your fellow artists, well, actually, I know where there's some buried treasure with your name on it. Do you want to maybe dig over here? You're just not allowed to tell them. So Corey, you get some ideas yeah. about what we can so, do. So, you know, now. one of the cool things about Monopoly is that all of these contracts for all of these different kinds of royalty based work are signed in three states. Right, they're signed in California, New York, Washington State, because that's where Amazon is. And of course, contract is a matter of state law. And mm. so the states could pass short bills that said, mm. as a matter of public policy, we will not enforce non-disclosure when it relates to material uh, errors and omissions on uh, royalty statements that uh, are to the detriment of royalty earning workers in our state and uh, or or anywhere. And so what that would mean is that with three short bills being introduced to three state houses with pushes from artist rights groups uh, that are, you know, opposing them is indefensible, right? Uh, you, you should be able to bind someone to secrecy if you stole from them is not a good look. Uh, and um, if you could pass those, you could, in this, at the stroke of a pen, put more money into the pockets of more artists all around the world, not just in those three states, because all those contracts are signed in those states, but they relate to workers everywhere, then 40 years with a copyright term extensions combined. 
Yeah, and an, another thing that we can do is we can demand transparency. We know that this works. Like once you know what's going on, right? Once you can see the enemy, then you've got something to fight. Um, and one of I think the most egregious stories in the book was around the Audible Gate scandal. We looked at how um, Audible had been running these various cons against independent authors and small publishers that were making them um, pay for. Like there were Amazon was encouraging uh, subscribers to Audible to return the book. That they this bought, thing, they listened to, they enjoyed. This shocked me. Audible would Isn't actually send you an email after you finished a book saying, "You know, you could return that." Uh, right. And and no that questions gets, asked. No questions asked. Did, did did you know that you can get a whole new book for free? And uh, I don't understand how they made money on this though. <laughs> this they have a subscription. Like, <laughs> it's a subscription plan. So this was oh, to so they're getting remember my said- ten dollars a month anyway. But right. who gets remember- charged on the return? The author. The author. So remember what I what we said is that um like so much of what Amazon does is about locking in its customers. Right. So this generous returns policy was only available to those ongoing subscribers. Oh, you had to be a subscriber. in the ecosystem, oh. right? Okay, so Amazon was very, Audible was very generously allowing these um, um, subscribers to return all of their, their books and basically use it like a library system. What they were doing, though, was clawing back the full royalty from the, the creators. So it costs um, Audible but nothing. But then hiding it. It costs Audible right. nothing. But they would take it yeah. out of the royalties. Yeah, but then then they hid it as well because they refused. Like Amazon's notoriously secretive. They just reported on net sales. So you know you might be an author, and on a day you saw that you've sold fifteen books. What you didn't see is that you actually sold. 30 books, but 15 books you'd sold previously had been returned, even if maybe the, the person had read the whole thing, they'd enjoyed it, they'd had it sitting on their device for nine months, um, and then they'd had the royalties clawed back. And the only way that they found out what was going on is because there was a data glitch. And so suddenly, on a single day, three weeks of returns data all showed up at the same time. And so finally, the veil was lifted. Like the authors had suspected something was up, but they didn't know how bad it was. And then that allowed them to start mobilizing against Audible and to actually actually achieve some change. So they're still fighting. It's mm-hmm. a hard fight. And Audible does not want to give in on this because once you scale scale up the, the con here, we're talking about a lot of money. Um, and of course, they don't have to unless... Unless we demand yeah. that they change their practice, they still right? need I mean, the writers. They still need the authors. At but some the point. writers need them. And you know, here's an interesting thing we heard the other day. Um, we we did an event here in L.A. Uh, where um, our our interlocutor was David Levine, David uh, Goodman, David Goodman. I beg your pardon. Who was uh, uh, the guy who led the Hollywood screenwriter strike with the seven thousand writers fired their agents. The agency's been bought by private equity funds. They were uh, accepting lower payments for their writers in exchange for, effectively for bribes. They were called mm-hmm. packaging fees. From there were studios. only four agencies, so they were able to yeah, do four this. big agencies. Mm-hmm. That's right. So so he he said, you know, these agencies were so powerful. And, you know, I can tell you as a writer, you dream of getting right. uh, a chance to sit down with an agent at CAA or William Morris and and do a deal and and uh, have some fancy agent representing you. They are the gatekeepers to all of the uh, all the career opportunities you might ever have, and and so writers really felt like they had all the power. Uh, and what David said was that they uh, they realized at a certain point that um, did I just call him David? 
You called him David. That was good. Okay. His name is David. I keep calling him Michael. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is a David Goodman. situation David going Goodman. on here. All right, yeah. It's, it's David still Goodman. David Goodman. Still David Goodman. <laughs> uh, that, that what he said was that they they what they all realized is that they only the agents only had power because they gave it to them. Mm-hmm. Right. That the agents really did like what is an agent without a writer, except for like a a, a, a guy with good teeth. Mm. Right. Like <laughs> at, 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 he's got nothing. Right. He's got nothing to sell. Right. And so when the writers all fired their agents, the agents were like, there's no way you're going to fire us. How are you going to get jobs without us? And they were like, how are the studios going to make movies without us? Because mm-hmm. we think that they hire us not because they like you. Mm-hmm. We think they hire us because they like us. Mm-hmm. And once they took back the power they had given to the agencies, they won. Right. That even the 22 months they stayed out. Even the biggest agency, an agency whose private equity owners had bought a bunch of other agencies, merged it with it, loaded them up with debt, declared a special dividend, paid it out to themselves, and had to somehow recoup all that debt to keep the the firm as a going concern, and could only do that by by um, screwing the uh, talent that they had under under management. Even they, for whom it was an existential matter, after 22 months, were like, well. We may go out of business if we can't screw our writers, but we will go out of business if we have no writers. We need somebody to screw. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then this is where we can see. like, you know, I, I just want to point knew- out real quickly, there are only four big agencies that do all the uh, podcast ad buying. This is a somewhat similar situation. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, so they were, they were, the, the agents, the, sorry, the writers were only able to do this because they had information on what the contracts actually said, right? And this is, this is really critical. And what we're seeing in, for example, in Europe with the digital single market directive in the EU, one of the things that they introduced in 2019 was transparency mandates so that um, artists and performers in the EU are now going to have rights in all member states um, to have greater access to information around how their works are being used, what kind of revenues are coming in from them, and how they're getting paid. And they're also getting new rights, you know, use it or lose it rights. If you've assigned your copyright to someone who's no longer commercially exploiting it, you get to get that back, um, and rights to fair and proportionate remuneration as well. So there are direct interventions that we can make if we actually want creators to get paid instead of just allowing them to be used as stalking horses to mask other people's economic interests. So so there's a legislative uh, angle to this, transparency. We need transparency, and, and, and there's also a, a collective action angle collective actions valuable what about going direct to the customers why do we need these middlemen at all what if we just disintermediated wasn't that the promise of the internet yeah and look i, I think that's fine like again if you want to be crack kalodney out there hanging out your shingle very famous yeah. canadian author buy I'm my book sell them on the uh, book, more on power the, to you on the, on the street know, yeah i i actually got my you don't and you, you don't kind have to of just do be that don't you street. don't you do yeah, that Corey? so i was gonna say yeah. i got my publishers all to agree that i could be a bookseller for them i'm a recovering bookseller i used to work in you know the oldest science fiction store in the world in toronto baka books and uh and so i like selling books and i have a store on my website craphound.com slash shop when you go there you buy the ebook and it's the same ebook you would get if you bought it at kobo or barnes and noble or amazon or wherever else you buy your ebooks and i'm the retailer and just like Amazon would take 70% of the money and send it to the publisher and keep 30% as a commission for itself, that's what I do. So I get 30%. And then my share of the royalties from my publisher is 25%. Nice. So they take that 75, 70% divided in four and send me back 
25% of it again. I'm so you get more than half. double my royalty. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, I effectively double my royalty, yeah. yeah. But for, for most people, what would be more useful is if you've got more ways to reach your customers rather than having to go through these trick points. And for that, we do need these, these systemic changes. And one of the things we talk about is how um, a, a really dumb law that prohibits bypassing something called DRM stops this from happening. So digital rights management or DRM it was supposed to protect against copyright infringement. But it got uh, co-opted by these big um, these big platforms like Amazon and lots of other companies um, to protect their own business models instead. And so, what we see with Amazon, for example, is that it's wrapped all of its well, most of its products in DRM, and that's what that's what keeps us locked into that ecosystem and why you can't just interoperate with Amazon. I can't take all my bypass- books off the Kindle yeah. and put it yeah. on a, some other reader. Yeah, 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 that's right. And and one way of thinking about this, right, is, okay, maybe we don't want, you know, maybe, and for me, you know, I don't want to buy anything on Amazon, but sometimes there's no choice but to buy anything on Amazon because I don't know where to get that thing from except Amazon, right? And as Zephyr Teachout talks at the end of her amazing book, Break Em Up, um, she's like, if you're spending four hours driving around to find the most ethical market, marker <laughs> to make your protest sign, no. you're wasting energy that you yeah. could have spent on the protest, right? And that's yeah. where the real fight is. But like one thing we could do is, well, if we were allowed to bypass that that digital rights management for non-infringing purposes, then you could install a plugin where you find the product that you need on Amazon and it usefully pops up with a local store that has it in stock and information about the price, right? We can make it convenient for people to make different decisions, but we need help to do that. And, you know, if if authors were free to set up their own bookstores and if publishers, if that came as standard in your publishing contract and there was like a little... Well, what do you need a publisher for, Corey? Do you have well, to? Well, my pub- my publisher does a lot of good stuff for me. They they go out, they promote the books in ways that I can. Okay. And I, you know, I did. You helped me with one. You actually did an audio read for the audio book of a thing I did called "With a Little Help," awesome. where I I self published my own uh, short story collection. I kept very scrupulous books. I published them on a monthly basis in Publishers Weekly and showed how much money I was making. I made about four times as much as I would have on a short story collection uh, with a with a regular publisher by publishing it myself. But I took the energy that I would have spent writing a novel to do it. Yeah, right. Hundreds make, of hours uh, of your labor. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's just a lot of work, right? But, but I, I do think again, that that's an opportunity for creators. For instance, totally. Um, yeah. we, Some creators we, want to do that. We saw, and like uh, lots of independent authors are doing that, right? Yeah. So they're doing that, you know, very, very successfully. Musicians, know that- Jonathan Colton. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as a podcast <laughs> network. Uh, you know, Patreon and memberful and think we have a club. The theory being disintermediate if we sold in effect, sold directly to our listeners. Um, and, and so that's more and more possible. So you see artists making a, NFTs. A, you see, you see right. more of this disintermediation but happening. It, but it's a spectrum, right? So, so imagine if lots of public law, independent and commercial, uh, writers, uh, writers signed to, to publishers could have their own stores. If it was very easy, turnkey, one click, you've got payment processing, accounting, all of it. And then, um, you could write a browser plugin because books have standard identifiers. They have ISBNs. And so you could write a browser plugin that when you're at Amazon shopping, if you land on a book where the author will sell it to you themselves, the buy it now button is replaced with a buy it from the author button. One click and you buy it from the author instead of from Amazon. Wouldn't and then that the author's great? getting twice the royalties. Wouldn't yeah, that'd be great. Be great. But the, the law stops us from doing that and it entrenches Amazon's wow. trick point. 
the law. See, that's what's really interesting about copyright. There's somebody's talking about Lars Ulrich suing Napster. He was just acting on behalf, in effect, of his record company in the long run. Not not on the behalf of the artist. He was protecting the rights of the record so, company. That's what DRM the, does. That's what copyright yeah, does. Here's the thing. You know, when I was a baby writer and I talked to more experienced writers about copyright, nobody really understood it very well. But here is their rule of thumb, right? The more copyright you have, the more you have to bargain with when it comes to talking to your publisher. But there were two problems with this theory, right? The first was that even though it, copyright might be a, a bargaining tool with your publisher, it's not a bargaining tool with your audience. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, like I, I, I live in Burbank, California. Uh, a couple of miles that way is the Warner Studio. A mile that way is the Disney Studio. Universal's like four miles that way. And, you know, when Universal and Warner do a licensing deal to build the Harry Potter theme park, you know, they need a complex fit for purpose instrument that, that is a framework for that negotiation. If it's going to do that, it's not going to be simple enough that the kids who are going to show up at my door in a couple of weeks in Harry Potter costumes on, on Halloween can understand it, right? right? And those kids are writing fanfic, and you just shouldn't have to understand copyright to do it. So that's the first problem, is that even if copyright has some utility in negotiating with an industrial actor in your supply chain, it's just not a useful tool for negotiating with your audience. If you have to understand copyright to uh, to read a book then we're all dead, right? Like, it's just just idiotic. But the other problem is that once publishers become sufficiently concentrated, then copyright becomes effectively a dead letter for helping you negotiate with them too. So if we're going to keep copyright useful as a negotiating tool for creators, we have to keep the market open so that um, we can actually sell our copyright piecemeal to publishers who need us more than we need them. Right. There are, in other words, are many ways to go about this, and there are multiple solutions. And the best way to figure out what's right for you is to go to chokepointcapitalism.com, buy the book directly from Rebecca and Corey. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and honestly, you will be glad you did because it's a very enjoyable, entertaining book with lots of stories about how this, how we got here. Uh, mm -hmm. and once you read it, as I said, you'll suddenly go, Oh, this has been going on all, all along. When Corey first came on our shows and said, "Yeah, I don't, I just put my books up for free," and and, and I thought you were nuts, <laughs> but you had me back. But, no, you're good was nuts, nuts, but charming. You were good, crazy, but uh, <laughs> privilege. But I've learned over time it really has worked for you, and uh, you know we've always been Creative Commons uh, on all of our stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. We never have had any DRM. Uh, but that's because we've been ad supported. So it was always in our interest sure. to get it out. Now we're really looking at, can we go direct to our audience? That's why we do Club Twit. I'm going to put a plug in for Club Twit later. But uh, right. I but think... To be clear, though, like one of the things we really, what we're really fighting for here is a world where people can sell their books, yes. they can sell their music, yes. where um, it's not only the very few winners at the top of the pyramid who are the most commercial that can afford to devote their professional lives to being creators like we don't want to live in that kind of impoverished world totally and you know uh, leo i just saw two of your viewers come into my store and buy the book in good the last two minutes oh. good job everybody there we go no I mean, i've always a said that but if the music within a minute of each other. it isn't they said in the chat room they were doing that uh, uh i've always said that if the music industry were just Instead of five people being platinum artists and having giant mansions, there'd be a hundred thousand people making a nice middle class living performing their music. Cause as artists, we just want to live and make our art. Mm -hmm. 
That's all. And the thing is, we we can have that, right? If we have less of the executives in hundred million dollar mansions. Yeah. Why are and- we but why are we giving them money? Yeah. They don't create I've, anything. I've, I've I've scarred Rebecca by driving her through Beverly Hills on the oh. way to our signing the other day. Now she's now she's uh, she's 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 seen what the mansions look like. You don't have mansions in Melbourne. Well, we do, but not like that. I, my <laughs> jaw was literally it was very hard to to converse because my was like, well, but they have, they have weather in Melbourne, right? Mm-hmm. That is a that is an important difference if you're going to build big weird mansions. But and I also have to point out. You're not seeing the real stuff because the real stuff you can't see from the road. Yeah, it's up in the hills. The good there was stuff. That gatehouse is, for that one house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not like, seeing the really ooh. big ones. You're not seeing Bill Gates' underground 100,000 square foot mansion. You're not seeing that. Where, where he hunts humans, yeah, right. allegedly. <laughs> I don't think he's a lizard. Honest, I really don't. Uh, just on the holidays, Corey. Just, just on, on the, the holidays. holidays. And it's consensual. <laughs> Uh, you uh, two are fantastic. I cannot recommend this book enough. I warning, it might radicalize you, but I think everybody's starting to feel the squeeze and seeing what's ahead on this road, and we don't want to go there. Yeah, Jeff Bezos does. Let him take his penis rocket to Mars. We don't need that here on planet Earth. There is a better way for all of us. Uh, Choke Point Capitalism. It's a fantastic book. Corey's going to be back on Sunday. Uh, you're going to be on our This Week in Tech panel. And Rebecca, if you're around, you're welcome to join us. But, uh, you know, it's a, a little bit of a different kind of environment. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, I'll be back on the road. Soon. Okay, good. But thank you All so right. much for the... And if we go to chokepointcapitalism.com, can we see places that you'll be doing readings and speaking? Yeah, so Rebecca's going to be, we're nearly over, but Rebecca's going to be at Harvard and I'm going to dial in on what day? Uh, well, let's see on the website, which is up there now. That's October 4. And nice. then uh, Corey's in Miami. I've got a thing in New York. And then we joined together in Ottawa uh, for the Ottawa Writers Festival talking about how we can survive uh, apocalypse. Yeah, and then we'll be in the UK for a while, but that's all mm-hmm. uh, still getting the, the details shaken out. Mm-hmm. But we'll see you. I am actually surprisingly pleased because, honestly, I thought this book would be banned, burned, suppressed in every possible way. The fact that you're getting all these speaking engagements is really encouraging to me. People are listening. They are paying attention. Yeah, they're pissed. Well, here's the thing. Here's like the dirty secret, right? Like even the Monopolist, right? Even Random House, who distributes this book for our plucky independent publisher that's part of the Unitarian Universalists, uh, and uh, which Albert Einstein once said would save the world. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a Unitarian. I'm proud to say it. (laughs) Good for you. Oh, yeah. So you profess a a, a belief in one or fewer gods. Yeah. Worship the God of your choice is our motto. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, even, even the people at Random House who distribute this book, you know, it's sure it's a giant publishing monopolist, but they all work in a choke point, right? They're all Mm -hmm. publishing workers who have only four employers to choose from Mm -hmm. and whose wages and whose um, uh, working conditions are being squeezed just like ours. Yeah, Yeah, like like anyone, like they as much as anyone else, the people who work in publishing are having their their passion weaponized to facilitate their exploitation. Yes. And there was a day this spring when 1% of all publishing workers resigned en masse. Wow. Uh, because they're all juniors and they all just and they went on Twitter and they just said, this is what my job is like. This is what my pay is like. Yeah, uh, they're I'm squeezes. not a trust affair. It's only kid. the people yeah. in the C-suites and the stockholders that yeah. are really getting rich on this. And, the, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, 100%. you're seeing these mass reg- resignations and the quiet quitting everywhere. Uh, people are waking up and we got to get there, get before the guillotines go up, because, you know, you never know when you got a guillotine who's going to get their head chopped off. 
I mean, I have one over here. Remember, no, no. I'll be I, Madame uh, Jafar. I'll just knit some head. socks here's, here here's, while we. Here's the here's my little guillotine. <laughs> I, 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 uh, just keeping my neck wow. out of the way here. That, yeah, stay away. That guy's dangerous. My wife gave it to me for my birthday. I think it's very good. Oh, I also you married think it might the have right. Been a hint. You married the right woman. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's it's quite good. I just I can't remember. Oh yeah, there's no. The don't mess anyway. You there. Oh no. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Giblin and Corey Doctorow, Choke Point Capitalism. We brought the site down, I understand. Uh, so uh, oh. <laughs> wait, a, wait a bit, but get the book. Well, it's Rebecca's server. I'm very sorry. That's it's okay. WordPress. It'll be We're back. We're running this whole thing on a shoestring because uh, when you publish a book about not monopolies, the big publishers don't want to give you a fat I advance for understand. it. Yeah. <laughs> I completely understand. Funny how that works. Funny how that works. Uh Bless you. So great to have you. Wonderful book. I'll see you Sunday, Corey. Rebecca, I hope we get to meet in person at some point. Thank you for writing a very good and very important book. This needs to be heard everywhere. Uh, And I apologize for reading it on Kindle Unlimited. (laughs) It's not there anymore, so I can say that now. I'll go to craphound.com and buy it or chokepointcapitalism.com and buy it. Um, We could probably send you a copy. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. My that ten bucks is my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Oh, thanks. Two more of your viewers just bought copies. Nice. Of it's, it's you know sometimes this kind of stuff you read like polemic and you go oh god you know just shut up and go away. This is not that kind of book. It's very engaging. Of course, because mm-hmm. because you got I, I don't know Corey's a brilliant writer and I'm sure you are too, Rebecca. And he so, taught me a lot on this. Yeah, book. yeah. it's just. Really, uh, a page turner. You wouldn't think this something like this would be a page turner. I'm so glad to hear this because we haven't been sure, right? Because like we've only sent it out to kind of some pretty wonky friends of ours. Well, I'm pretty wonky as advanced readers. I, uh, I know, and, but, but yeah, the stories are engaging. Way, maybe. You yeah, do a yeah. really good job of bringing it home, and it's so hard to explain things like monopsony. And I think you do a really mm, good job of you. that. So oh, I really appreciate um, that. Uh, this is this is one of the best uh, books I've read. I mean, it's really Thanks, really Leo. good. Wow, well done. Appreciate it. Bravo. That's so great of you. And thank well, you. If you want to leave a review on Amazon, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> Nobody should buy this from Amazon. Go to yeah, smash that like button. But, but everybody should buy it. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> should wait and review. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, All right, guys. See you I really later. appreciate it. We'll see you Sunday. Bye. Bye-bye. You know, one of the things we're doing, this is actually really segues, I think, very nicely into one of the things we're doing to try to survive in this world where we are being choked out of business uh, at here at Twit. And so I want to put in a big plug uh, for Club Twit. This is something we've started doing because of exactly these trends. We want to go direct to you, our audience, and say, We'd like to have a deal with you. So we, I think, have put together a really good package that is well worth the money, 7 bucks a month. Uh, you get ad-free versions of all of our shows. In fact, this show is sponsored by Club Twit. Notice, there were no ads. The only reason we can do this show is because Club Twit exists. Uh, so you get all the shows ad-free. You get additional shows that we don't put out. We've got Hands on Macintosh with Micah Sargent. We've got Hands on Windows with Paul Thorat, the Untitled Linux Show with Jonathan Bennett, the Giz Fizz with Dick T. Bartolo, all of these on the Twit Plus feed for Twit Club members only. We also have a Discord that is full of fascinating 
conversations and discussions. That's where our book club lives. Stacy does that book club every month. I, I could. I think we have put together something that's very, very compelling. But in order for this to work, in fact, I'll be frank, in order for Twit to survive, because uh, times are really tough right now in the podcast business, and they're only going to get tougher as companies like iHeart and Spotify suck the life out of podcast advertising. And that's exactly what's happening. And then on top of that, you've got a recession. It's not good. And, and this is the case for all of your favorite podcasts and your favorite podcast networks. That's why so many of them are being acquired by iHeart and Spotify because that's the only way they can survive. We'd like to find a new way to survive. And that's with Club Twit. Do me a favor if you would. If you can afford it, I understand. And not all of you can. That's why we continue to offer free versions of almost all of our shows ad supported. But if you can, Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. There's also a yearly plan. There's a corporate plan if you want to buy it for your employees. Uh, and it's shows like this, I think, that really make the club what it is. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And for those of you who are Club Twit members, thank you very much because we couldn't be doing this without you. It's expensive. We've got to bring a, t- a technical director in. We've got to have a- an editor work on the show. Um, it is it is an expensive proposition to make these shows. And uh, the only way we can do it is with the support of Club Twit. So thank you. Uh, that's it for this triangulation. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time. I'd like to do more of these. With your help, we can. Bye-bye. Hey, we should talk Linux. It's the operating system that runs the internet, but your game consoles, cell phones, and maybe even the machine on your desk. But you already knew all that. What you may not know is that TwitNow has a show dedicated to it, the Untitled Linux Show. Whether you're a Linux pro, a burgeoning sysadmin, or just curious what the big deal is, you should join us on the Club Twit Discord every Saturday afternoon for news, analysis, and tips to sharpen your Linux skills. And then make sure you subscribe to the Club Twit exclusive Untitled Linux Show. Wait, you're not a Club Twit member yet? Well, go to twit.tv slash club twit and sign up. Hope to see you there. <laughs>